Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 8 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Siege Begins. In the last episode we heard about how in 1453 a handful of Genoese, Venetians and other adventurers from further afield chose to join the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI Palaeologus in the besieged city of Constantinople. But the situation was truly desperate. The Turkish army had around 100,000 soldiers against only about 7,000 Byzantine and allied soldiers. The Turks also had a large artillery force of cannons, which was the first ever to be used against the ancient walls of Constantinople, which had been built a thousand years before in the 5th century by the Roman Emperor Theodosius II, and were clearly not designed to withstand artillery. But the remarkable thing is the determination of the defenders. There was no talk of surrender, although they might must have known their chances of survival were very, very slim. But I suppose they thought, on the one hand, they had nowhere to flee to, and they probably also had a belief that Constantinople was a sacred city and there could be a divine miracle to save them. Such ideas weren't considered crazy in the Middle Ages, and I can't help feeling that this must have been one of the main things that kept the defenders' morale up. The other was the hope that they could be saved by the West. And as we will hear, there was a small fleet of three Genoese galleys which the Pope had personally paid for and which was on its way to Constantinople. But the truth was that there was no one else trying to save them. And as we've discussed before, this was because Western Europe was still in a pretty weak condition in 1453 as it was still recovering from what has been called the crisis of the late Middle Ages in the 14th century due to the Black Death, which killed about a third of the population, harvest failures due to climate change and the advent of the Little Ice Age, peasant revolts because of famine and economic collapse, the Hundred Years' War, which was a particularly brutal and damaging conflict between England and France, and also the weak state of the papacy. And if you like films, then I recommend a film which captures a lot of this called The Last Jewel, which is the latest film just out by Ridley Scott, which uh, I saw the other day. It's set in the 1380s and portrays France at this time of crisis as a bleak, brutal country ravaged by plague and warfare. It's not as good, in my opinion, as Ridley Scott's other historical films like Gladiator and The Kingdom of Heaven, the latter, of course, which is set at the time of the Battle of Hattin in 1187 when Saladin captured Jerusalem, which we've talked about in a much earlier episode of this podcast. But The Last Jewel is still a lot of fun and, the, and certainly conveys the picture of France as pretty bleak in, at this time, which helps to explain why there wasn't much enthusiasm to save Constantinople 50-odd years later. So, without further ado, I'll read from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) 
When the Ottoman Sultan Murad had attacked Constantinople in 1422, the Byzantines had concentrated their defence on the outer wall, which the Turks had been utterly unable to breach. Now, in 1453, the famous Genoese soldier Justiniani, who joined the defence of the city, and the Emperor Constantine XI, agreed, in view of the very few troops at their disposal, that this would again be the best strategy. The inner wall could not be managed as well, though heavier missiles could be fired from its towers. The damage done to the outer wall in 1422 had been largely repaired during the following years, and Justiniani had made it his business to see that the repairs were complete. On the 5th of April, the defenders took up the positions allotted to them by the emperor. The emperor stationed himself with his best Byzantine troops at the Mesotychion, where the walls cross the Lycus Valley, with Justiniani on his right at the Carizian Gate and the Miriandrion. But when it became clear that the Sultan was going to concentrate his attack on the Mesotychion, Justiniani and his Genoese moved down to join him there, and the Miriandrion was taken over by the Bocchiadi brothers and their men. The Venetian leader, Minotto, and his staff took up quarters in the Imperial Palace at Blackenai and were responsible for its defence, their first task being to clear and refill the moat. An elderly compatriot saw to the section of the walls between the Caligarian Gate and the Theodosian Wall. The Langasco brothers were stationed behind the moat that ran into the Golden Horn. The sea walls were more thinly manned. The Venetian Jacobo Contarini was in charge at Studion. Next to him, along a section that was unlikely to be attacked, the walls were guarded by Greek monks who presumably were to keep watch and summon reserves should an emergency occur. Near to them, by the harbour of Eleutherius, were Prince Orhan and his Turks. At the east end of the Mamora shore, under the Hippodrome and the old sacred palace, were the Catalans under Pere Julia. Cardinal Isidore was stationed with 200 men at the Acropolis Point. The shores of the Golden Horn were guarded by Venetian and Genoese sailors under the command of Gabriele Trevisano, while his compatriot Alviso Diedo was made commander of the ships in the harbour. Two detachments of reserves were kept in the city, one under the command of the Byzantine Megadux Lucarus Notaras, stationed in the Petra quarter, close behind the land walls, with a supply of mobile guns, and the other under Nicephorus Paleologus near the Church of the Holy Apostles on the central ridge of the city. Ten ships were detached from the fleet to serve at the boom. Five of these were Genoese, three Cretan, one from Anconia and one Greek. The command here was given to a Genoese, probably to Soligo, who had fixed the boom. It was essential to have someone there who would be on good terms with the Genoese of Pera, as the chain was attached at one end end to their walls. In general, the emperor seems to have tried to intermix his Byzantine, Venetian and Genoese troops so that they would realise their interdependence and avoid nationalistic quarrels. The defence was adequately equipped with javelins and arrows 
and a few culverines and with mangonels for casting stones. There were also several cannons in the city, but they proved to be of little value. There was a shortage of saltpetre for them, and it was found that when they were fired from the walls and towers, which was necessary if their missiles were to reach the enemy lines, the reverberation damaged the fortifications. The individual soldiers seemed to have had good suits of armour, better than those of most of the Turkish troops. By the morning of the 6th of April, the soldiers were at their posts and the garrisons on the walls could watch the Turkish army take up its positions. The Sultan had already detached a large section of his army under Zaganos Pasha to the northern shore of the Golden Horn, where it spread out over the hills to the Bosphorus, thus isolating the Genoese colony of Pera and keeping watch on any move that the Genoese there might make. A road was constructed over the marshy ground at the head of the Horn so that Zagonos could communicate quickly with the main force. Opposite the walls of Constantinople, from the Golden Horn up to the hill to the Carizian Gate, were placed the regular European troops of the Turkish army under Karadja Pasha, who had at his disposal a number of heavy guns for use against the single black-and-eye wall, and especially against the vulnerable corner where the wall joined the main Theodosia. Wall. From the southern slopes of the Lycus Valley down to the Sea of Marmora, there were the regular Turkish Anatolian troops under Ishak Pasha, who assisted no doubt because the Sultan did not entirely trust him by Mahmud Pasha, a half-Greek, half-Slav renegade, descended from the old imperial family of the Byzantine Angeli, who was becoming the Sultan's most intimate friend and counsellor. The Sultan himself took command of the section in the Lycus Valley, opposite to the Mesotikion. He pitched his red and gold tent about a quarter of a mile from the walls. In front of it were his janissaries and other selected regiments together with the best of his guns, including Urban's great masterpiece. The Bashi Bazooks were encamped in various groups just behind the main lines, ready to be moved wherever they might be needed. In front of their positions, for the whole length of the walls, the Turks dug a trench, backed by a rampart made with earth, on top of which they put up a low wooden palisade pierced at frequent intervals by posterns. The fleet under Baltoglu had orders to see that no supplies could reach the city by sea. There was a constant patrol off the Mamaros shore so that no boat could approach the small harbours there. But Baltoglu's main task was to force his way through the boom that guarded the Golden Horn. He made his headquarters in the Bosphorus off the quay known as the Double Column where the palace of Dolma Bace now stands. There he was joined ten days after the siege began by a number of large ships from the northern Anatolian ports, all of them equipped with heavy guns. As soon as the Byzantine emperor saw that the Turkish troops were assembled before the walls, he suggested to Trevisano that his Venetian sailors, clad in their distinctive costumes, should parade nearly a thousand of them along the whole length of the walls so that the sultan should be quite certain that there were Venetians too among his enemies. 
the Venetians gladly complied. The Sultan, for his part, in conformance with Islamic law, sent a last message under a flag of truce to the city. He would, he said, as the law commanded, spare the citizens, harming neither their families nor their belongings if they voluntarily surrendered to him. Otherwise, they would be shown no mercy. But the citizens of Constantinople had little faith in his promises, nor would they now desert their emperor. As soon as this formality was over and the guns were in position, the Turks opened the fighting with a heavy bombardment of the walls. By dusk on that first day, the 6th of April, a portion of the wall near the Carisian Gate had been severely damaged and a steady bombardment the following day brought it down in ruins. But after nightfall, the defenders managed to make adequate repairs. Mehmet then decided to wait until he could bring more guns to bear on the weaker parts of the walls. In the meantime, his soldiers were ordered set to work to fill up the great moat so that they could advance at once to occupy any breach that the artillery might make. He also ordered mining operations to be undertaken against the parts of the wall where the terrain seemed to be suitable. At the same time, the Admiral Boltoglu was told to test the defences of the boom. It was probably on the 9th of April that his ships made their first attack there, but they had no success and Baltaglu decided to await the coming of the Turkish Black Sea Squadron. During this time of waiting, the Sultan took some of his best troops and some artillery to attack two small castles outside the walls which were still holding out for the Byzantine Emperor. One was at Therapia on a hill above the Bosphorus, the other at the village of Studios near the Marmora coast. The castle at Therapia resisted for two days until its walls had been shattered by gunfire and the bulk of its garrison killed. The survivors, 40 of them, then surrendered unconditionally. They were all put to death by impalement. The smaller castle at Studios was demolished in a few hours. The 36 survivors of the garrison were captured in the ruins and likewise they were impaled. This was done within sight of the walls that the citizens of Constantinople might see what befell those who opposed the Ottoman Sultan. Meanwhile, the Turkish Admiral Boltaglu was sent to occupy the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmora. Only on the largest of the islands, Principo, was there any attempt at resistance. There, on a hilltop beside the main monastery of the island, was a solid tower built by the monks as a refuge against pirates, probably at the time when the Catalan Company was raiding the empire. Its small garrison of 30 men refused now to surrender. Boltoglu had brought some cannon with him, but the cannonballs made no impression on the thick masonry. So, as soon as the wind was favourable, he collected brushwood, which he placed close to the walls and set alight, adding sulphur and pitch to the fire. The flames soon engulfed the building. Some of the defenders perished within the walls, and those that escaped through the flames were taken and put to death. Baltoglu then rounded up the civilian inhabitants of the island and sold them all into slavery to punish them for having permitted resistance on their soil. On the 11th of April, 
the Ottoman Sultan was again in his tent before the walls and all his great guns had been placed to his liking. The following day the bombardment began to last with ceaseless monotony for more than six weeks. The cannons were unwieldy. It was difficult to keep them in position on their platforms of planks and rubble. They continually slid off into the mud caused by the April rains. The largest of them, including Urban's monster, needed so much attention that they could only be fired seven times in a day. But each of those seven shots did enormous damage to the walls of Constantinople, the cannonballs coming from just across the moat in a cloud of black smoke and with a deafening roar broke into a thousand pieces as they hit the walls and the ancient masonry could not stand up to them. The defenders attempted to lessen their impact by hanging sheets of leather and bales of wool over the walls but with little effect. Within less than a week the outer wall across the Lycus Valley had been completely destroyed in many places and the moat in front of it largely filled up so that the task of repair was very difficult. Nevertheless Nevertheless, the valiant Genoese soldier Justiniani and his helpers managed to put up a stockade. Men and women too from the city came every night after dark with planks and barrels and sacks of earth. The stockade was made mainly of wood with barrels filled with earth placed onto it to serve as crenellations. It was ramshackle and fragile but at least it provided some protection for the defenders. At the harbour where the boom was, things were going better. On the 12th of April, as soon as his reinforcements from the Black Sea had arrived, the Turkish Admiral Baltoglu had brought up his larger ships towards the chain. As he approached, his archers let loose a hail of arrows at the ships that lay at anchor, guarding it, and his guns fired their cannonballs. Then, as they closed in, his marines hurled flaming brands onto the Christian ships, while others tried to cut their anchor ropes, and others to board them by means of of grappling irons and ladders, but they had little success. The cannonballs could not achieve sufficient elevation to harm the tall Christian galleys. The Byzantine Megadox Lucas Notaris had been sent with his reserves to help in the defence. It was very well organised. Pails of water carried by relays of men put out the fires. The Christian arrows and javelins fired from the greater height of their decks and the crow nests were far more effective than the Turks and their stone-throwing machines did great damage. Cheered by their successes and aided by navigators more skilful than those of the Turks, the Christian fleet began to move out to encircle the Turkish ships nearest to the great boom. In order to save them, Baltoglu called off the attack and sailed back to his anchorage off the double columns. This defeat humiliated the Sultan. His active mind saw at once that unless his cannons could aim higher, they would be of little use against the tall ships of the Christians. His foundries were ordered to improve their designs. It was difficult to calculate the necessary trajectory, but after a few days they made improvements that satisfied the Sultan. A cannon with a higher trajectory was placed just beyond the Glatter Point and began to fire at the ships anchored along the boom. The first shot failed, but the second landed on the very 
very centre of a Byzantine galley and sank it with considerable loss of life. The Christian ships were forced to keep within the boom where the walls of Pera offered protection. It was, however, on the land that Mehmet was most hopeful. He calculated that the damage done to the land walls would enable him to take the city without the necessity of forcing the boom in the Golden Horn. On the 18th of April, two hours after sunset, he ordered an assault on the Mesotychion. To the light of flares, with their drums beating and their cymbals clanging and shouting their battle cries, detachments of heavy infantry and javelin throwers and archers and the footmen of the Janissary Guard rushed over the filled-in moat up to the stockade. They brought torches with which to set fire to the wooden planks of which it was made, and they had fixed hooks at the end of their lances with which to bring down the barrels full of earth which topped it. Some had ladders to place against the parts of the wall that still stood. The fighting was confused in the narrow terrain on which the assault was launched. The Turks' superiority in numbers was valueless, while the armour worn by the Christians was more efficient than that of the Turks and enabled them to risk their persons more boldly. Justiniani was in command and proved his value as a leader. The Byzantines as well as Italians were inspired by his energy and courage and loyally supported him. The emperor himself was not present. He had feared that this was to be an attack along the whole line of the walls and was on a hasty tour of inspection to see that everyone was prepared. But the fighting lasted for four hours. Then the Turks were called back to their lines. The Venetian diarist Barbaro calculated that the Turks had lost about 200 men. He claimed that not one of the Christians had been killed. The failure of this first Turkish assault on the walls, coming so soon after the failure of the Turkish attack on the boom guarding the Golden Horn, gave new confidence to the defenders of Constantinople. Though the bombardment continued relentlessly, they set about the repair of the wall with freshened enthusiasm. If only help would soon arrive from the outside world, the city might yet be saved. Two days later, their hopes were given some encouragement, for on the 20th of April, Byzantine lookouts on the sea walls saw the approach in the distance of three mighty Genoese galleys and a large Byzantine cargo ship. These were the ships dispatched by the Pope. The question was now whether they could fight their way through the Turkish fleet and reach the city. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about whether the Pope's ships managed to get through the Turkish blockade to reach Constantinople. See you then. (laughs) 